Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of The Edge. Uh, we have a friend of the show on today and a personal friend of both mine and John's. Uh, John gets to bump into him more than I do. Um, but Mr. Chase Cunningham, also known as Dr. Zero Trust, which I am going to ask you about at some point. Um, but but tell us what you've been up to for the, the last six months since we kind of spoke. Yeah, I mean, uh, still doing a lot of advisory work with folks up on the U.S. Uh, government in Capitol Hill. Um, I'm uh, running a bunch of things over at G2 as the VP for security market research. So trying to build a security analyst practice there. Uh, managed to wrap up a book, took a vacation, which uh, was really strange for me to actually like unplug for a few days. I I was I don't think I've ever been that like kind of neurotic in my life you know just like wondering what the hell's going on and i'm still kind of unplugged um and uh other than that just you know trying to get through the constant uh you know push we have with all those et things i did a bunch of work with folks in uh australia recently because i don't know if you saw it but australia basically said this et thing works for the u.s federal government we're gonna align to it and they they put a whole of government approach on the zt so i've been uh spending some late nights and early mornings with people in Australia talking about their ZT initiatives too. I, I guess the time difference is pretty crazy for you. Yeah, it's pretty miserable. Uh, Cause I mean, I, you know, they're, they're kind of, I guess you call, I'm doing it all pro bono, but they're all kind of clients, I guess you could call it. And, you know, having to get up at two o'clock in the morning and take a call or whatever else, it's just, uh, it gets pretty old, pretty fast. Um, I'm not saying I want to go to Australia, wink. I'm just saying, if you want me to come, wink, I'll come <laughs> over there. Have you ever been before? No, I've always wanted to go. It's one of those places where, like, you know, uh, I'm really interested in, like, uh, crocodiles and alligators. So I've always wanted to go and, you know, see a salty in person. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had the luxury of going once on holiday and once for business. And it's it's definitely a decent place to go. It's a 17-hour flight from the UK. I don't know what it is. from. The, I guess it's probably similar from the I US. Very from, similar. Yeah, I think from here, it uh, totals up to 26. Yeah, it's crazy, right? But yeah. it sounds like the ZT stuff's definitely progressing. I mean, we, we, myself and John did some work with CSA on the Zero Trust kind of documentation and stuff. And I know you were involved in that in the exam. But it's, it's it appears to be getting traction kind of everywhere now outside of the US and, and, and a lot of governments. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just uh, the, the contribution of the community here has been so awesome that people have finally... Um, the people who actually know what the hell they're doing have finally got through the vendor slog and the marketing shenanigans and have really pushed the uh, the actual value proposition forward. And now we have certifications with CSA. We have some other stuff in works. There's a, an updated um, uh, draft document that's been submitted to the White House on the next executive order. So, I mean, it's, you know, we're pushing this, the whole, the whole government of Australia said we're doing ZT. Like I... I would have never thought that this stuff would be where it is now um, a few years ago, but yeah, it's it's good because this is going to categorically change the security posture for organizations globally. And I think the other thing that continues to occur to me is if you doubt it and you think that it's a bunch of BS, whatever, go ahead because then you're the slow gazelle. I'm fine with that. Like if you're <laughs> if the zombies are chasing me and you want to tie your shoe, brother, tie it. Like I'll help. I'll I'll actually you know make sure you tie both of them because I'm not getting eaten. So it took five minutes to get to gazelles and people being eaten. So we did quite well. <laughs> right, yeah. I can, I, uh, it's, it's always a question of how fast will I get into stupidity. So. No, I mean, to be honest, I mean, a year ago, I guess, we were talking about ZT quite a lot, even a little bit before that. And, and I was having meetings in the UK and, and across Europe, and, and nobody was really talking about it or understood it. And certainly in the last 
three to six months, it's definitely gaining momentum here. We we have a new regulation coming this too. It's mentioned in there. It's mentioned now in Cyber uh, Essentials. There, there's a lot of a lot of noise around it now. I still think there's uncertainty in in where to start. And I mean, I keep saying just start, like as everybody does. Um, but it's definitely people are definitely beginning to understand why it should be done. They don't necessarily know yet how it should be done or how to measure where they are. And I think some form of maturity model is great to, to do that. Um, one of the things that I've spoken to John about is cybersecurity insurance. At some point, maybe we'll be able to get a scoring against Zero Trust to help you get a better cost on that. But I don't know if you know, if is that likely to happen, do you reckon? Uh, I know that there's been some orgs on the insurance side that have finally realized like they can't keep doing business the way they have been and just issuing policies based on how much money somebody can potentially pay. They've they've actually come out and said, if you want us to cover you, here's what your policy looks like based on you validating you have these controls. I don't think we're ages away from a cyber insurance ZT sort of thing. Um, it makes a lot of sense in my mind, but when will we get there? I'm not sure. I mean, insurance is one of those things where uh, the actuarial data for this is uh, really difficult to come up with. I mean, it's not it's not crash data on a Ford Pinto. You know what I mean? Everything is different and everything is uh, unique to the organization or whatever else. So, <clears throat> but uh, you could argue that we do have known best practices. And if you're doing things that are basically totally orthogonal to best practices, your policy should be you know reflective of that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've talked about all the time is just getting the basics right. There's so much that people aren't doing from, in my mind, from a security point of view in regards to just getting the basics right. Like I, I see you post on LinkedIn all the time about patching and stuff like that. And it's like, if 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 you're not patching, it really doesn't matter what else you do in your environment if you've got all the doors open. And and I, I quite often have the conversations now about ZT and, and I'd say, look, get the basics right, get the foundations right before you start building on top of it, because it doesn't matter how great you are on the strategy if you haven't got passwords correct or you're not patching or you're not doing those basics. Um, but I am going to ask you a question that I've never asked you before. Where did the Dr. Zero Trust come from? Uh it was actually a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Um, a really good friend of mine who works at uh, Illumio named uh, uh, Loy Lewis uh, was, I was doing some consulting stuff and uh, he was like, man, you got a computer science doctorate? And I was, yeah, big deal, whatever. And he said, well, as much as you do in ZTs, like you should have a doctorate of zero trust. And I was like, sure. So I just kind of started doing that. And uh, it wasn't like I had any sort of intelligent plan or whatever else, like everything else in my life and career i just kind of bumbled into it and it's worked into a good thing i wish i really wish i could claim that uh i figure this stuff out like it just kind of happens and i'm just willing to run with it do you think we'll ever get to a point where you can do like a university degree or something in zero trust uh maybe i mean i've uh there's a, a course at um georgetown uh and then there's some other folks over in the, the dc area that have asked me to help like do some adjunct faculty things around zero trust so maybe we eventually get there because, I mean, you could say, oh, that's a bunch of, you know, horse hockey or whatever. But think about this. I mean, a number of years ago, you couldn't even get a degree in cybersecurity and somebody had to start being adjunct faculty to write course material for cyber. So. 
I wonder if it will start off as a module as part of cybersecurity, which is probably mm -hmm. a good place. I would say probably so. I mean, that that's if you think about how education, like university stuff evolves, it probably, you know, they throw it out there, they see if it gets adoption, and then they see if it can be uh, grown, and then they push forward from that. So I think as long as as long as the initiative keeps doing what it's doing, I think eventually there might be like a cybersecurity, I don't know, maybe not a degree, but maybe like parts of a, if you get a degree in, I don't know, like uh, computer science or cyber, maybe there would be a module for ZT. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago since I did my degree and there was definitely nothing to do with cyber in my degree because the internet had only just been invented. Uh, um, when I finished my doctorate, I was like, I'm done. Thank God I I've closed out of oh, my brain. I think I dumped a million electrons the day I got my, my uh, paper on the wall, like done. <laughs> John, is there anything you want to ask before we kind of pivot onto a different topic? Yeah, I wanted to go back to, uh, so you mentioned you've been doing a lot of work with the government. Um, you know, there's a second, sounds like there's a second Biden executive order or something along those lines. Let's kind of step back and and see how we, how, how have we done in the past year in terms of the federal government after the executive order and and what what sort of initiatives can we be looking forward to in the next 12 months? It could I be mean, a I, could be a Trump executive order, right? If I'm, yeah, I mean, you've got a ways to go for that one. So, well, it, it, <laughs> twelve it months and a lot of things can change. Yeah, well, the way this government goes, it could be I don't know whoever's after those two, you know, yokels, but we'll see. Um, I, I think the government's done a pretty decent job of trying to align to it. I mean, there's a ZT program office. There's a person running it. There's oh, a couple billion dollars that have been allocated. Uh, Dell has got this really good project going on called Fort Zero that they're doing a lot of the work with the Fed and it's funded, which is where everything meets the road in the government, right? If they have money and it's not being spent, then it doesn't matter at all. Um, so I think that there's been some good progress there. And if you watch their, they're being very overt about what is going right, where they're having issues, they're publishing strategy updates all the time. And Randy Resnick, the guy running the program office, he flat says, he's like, look, this is a 2030 deal for us. And that's pretty valid. I mean, you're thinking it's a government. It's like trying to turn a battleship with a wooden paddle. Um, it's going to take time. So they're they're doing it. And it's working to go forward. There's some agencies within the Fed that have still kind of, um, you know, leaned back and are not really leaning in on it. But that's okay. They're going to have to do it whether they like it or not. Um, I think the good thing is there's not been a lot of push towards um, like a compliance agenda for ZT in the Fed because that will totally just tangential uh, operations, everything in there, everyone will chase that compliance initiative rather than what they have right now, which is strategy. So I think it's a good, good overall uh, alignment. And it seems like there's a uh, in military terms, a glide slope for, you know, in state. That sounds good. Um, but we're starting, and you, you mentioned compliance. Um, we're starting to see more of that within the um, enterprise space and the regulatory the regulatory space as well. Um, how do you see that going? I mean, it, yeah, it was yesterday the SEC's uh, ruling finally goes into effect. Uh, that's that's probably step one of of many to come. Um, what are you seeing on the on the other side? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I'm gonna you know, I'll I'll die on the hill that I don't want a compliance initiative for ZT just because I think that that totally devalues the actual uh, strategic approach that needs to happen here. I don't I don't want somebody to pencil whip you know their compliance for ZT. I just I don't want that. I want them to actually have the long term alignment. And it you do ZT and you become compliant rather than you are compliant, you get ZT. So I think that that. 
that's where things need to go. Um, but the sad thing about anything, uh, and I, I honestly, the, the older I get, the more I believe it's like the root of all problems, I guess you could say, is definitely money. So as soon as yeah. auditors and whoever else figures out they can make a nickel on this, then it becomes a thing. And, you know, then it starts making things worse. So uh, as long as there's, as long as there's blood in the water, there'll be sharks sitting around waiting to see what falls in. Yeah, I think it makes it really difficult because People are going to want to do this to tick a box in some cases, right? And and I hear stories all the time, no doubt. We all hear these stories where people have been audited. They, they've ticked a box to say we're okay, and then they get compromised. And when they actually look, oh, the EDR is only deployed to 20% and not everybody, or they've only patched X this, or they've only done this just to tick a box. And we've had these conversations before, and I, I think – when it becomes a tick box exercise to be able to get a certification or to be able to reduce spend or be able to say you're not going to get compromised, I think we start misinterpreting what the what the approach is. And I mean, we've talked about this before, that zero trust is really completely different in the way we've ever done it, which is why I like to think there's going to be, it's going to take time because there's a lot of people like myself that are in the industry that have learned to do things a certain way and we're not great at unlearning certain things and doing things in a different way. So I can see, it's a bit like the snowball rolling down the hill. I think we've maybe pushed it to the top now and it will gain traction, but how long is it going to take to actually be fully out there and are we going to muddy the waters with regulation and compliance and all of these other things before we actually realize it's a strategy? Because I know people are starting to realize that, but it's not worldwide yet. And if the message shifts before people have adopted it or thought about it, they might just adopt the shift and not the the, the real reason for this. Um, and that's that's my concern. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your new book. I apologize. I haven't read your other book, but I, I you've got one other one or more than one? Uh, I have uh, six other books. See, I that I should apologize. I haven't read any of them other than this one. You're not missing and, anything. <laughs> no, but this one's hysterical. I mean, what, what? Why did you write this one? What was the concept of it? I mean, I've read not all of it, and I understand. But for our listeners, what what is kind of the synopsis of why you wrote it, and and why now? Yeah. So I mean, I I made, I set a goal for myself on like books to read every year. I think this year I did um, 27, which was pretty good. And a lot of that's listening, but you know, I, that's sort of reading, I guess you could call it. Uh, but there, I listened to a lot of business stuff and self-help and psychology and whatever. And I really couldn't find other than one or two authors, a solid book for technologists and for um, people in the cybersecurity space that was really about like, how not to lead and how not to be kind of a general jackass when you get to the C-suite. And I was like, I, I've worked with all those jackasses. I should write that book. So that was literally the impetus of it. And I went to Wiley and they were kind enough to say, sounds like a great idea, go off and write it. And I did. So it was, it was fun because it was very cathartic for me to uh, kind of, you know, uh, tongue-in-cheek vent all of my uh, frustration and learning and from those you know miserable interactions over the years i mean you you definitely do that i mean you kind of i mean i don't want to give too much away to the people that are going to read it but 
you give your real world experience for kind of each chapter and i mean i i don't know you fantastically well but i've met you and it's it simply is just you, you the, the one about the horses and and when you're young and and clearly quite stubborn and and, and all of those things and i was just like that's just brilliant and then you you I mean, I'm sure the people that you talk about read it must know it's them. I mean, I just, I, I would would not be surprised if you've had phone calls or text messages. Uh, um, well, when it gets to broader distribution, I fully expect some people to be kind of pissed off, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know who they are, but the descriptions, I would imagine if it, if one of them was me, I'd be like, that's me. But I just, um, I mean, I've, I don't read as much as I should or as much as I used to, but I, I found it really entertaining. And like I said, I haven't finished it yet, but it, it has made me realize when I was younger, I read management books and leadership books, and they would always say, do this, do this, do this. Yours doesn't, it doesn't really say that. It's like, don't do th these things, because if you do, this is what it means. So you end up with, if you take all the bad stuff away, you end up with what you should do, but you've approached it from an angle that I'm not that familiar with. And you you talk about obviously being firefighter. Did I get the term right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you've told us that story before on one of the other podcasts. But when I read it, I'm like, that sounds really quite hard. And it, it it's it's about teamwork and it, it, it calls out the fact that some people, for me, the way I read it is some people approach something and just won't give up when maybe they should at, at times. They're just not made for that particular task. That yeah. doesn't mean to say that they're not more than capable of doing some other tasks, maybe, but just you're not cut out to be in a burning building in that suit in flames. Maybe that's just not yeah. you. And Yeah, I mean... I was going to say the amount of times I've seen in industry that people have been promoted because they're maybe really good at the particular job they're doing and they've been promoted and they're suddenly doing a job that they maybe aren't skilled to do anymore. And that, that worries me. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wrote a whole chapter on kind of the brilliant jerk problem, which I'm not taking credit for that. Like Jeff Pollard and Forrester and some other people have, have really done a good job of breaking down the brilliant jerk stuff. But there's a book by uh, the guy that was at Netflix called The No Asshole Rule, which is a really great book to read as well. Um, and they they kind of touched on the brilliant jerk thing, but uh, like we see that, and I know I've run into it a million times where you'll have people who uh, come into the space and they've come out of college or uni or whatever, and then they wind up because they built some really cool piece of technology, becoming an executive and becoming a CEO. And I would say in my experience, seven times out of 10, they number one, didn't want that job. And then number two, they're really unhappy about the fact that they've been made to do that. And they don't like all the nuances of being a CEO business person. So it just like oozes out of them into every other aspect of their work life. And it makes everybody around them miserable. And then they become the brilliant jerk because they're super smart and they're super valuable, but they're a dick because they're acting like one and you don't want them to be in that place. And, you know, board members and, and uh, investors will be like, no, no, they, they have to stay there. They're the, they're the CEO. Like, no, if you're not to your point, if you're not good at this, if this is not what you want to do and where you provide value, 
you're better off doing other things. And I put yeah. the examples in the book of like the guy that worked at the White House that literally caused problems for the president of the United States because he was a brilliant jerk. And they should have said, you're awesome. You're amazing. But we're not going to put you in this position because you're super smart. You're you have to have other skill sets that are more almost more valuable um, in this context or you're going to hurt our mission. And I don't have time to deal with your BS. So go off and build great things. Go off and be as awesome as you are at what you do. But just because of the nature of you making something does not mean that you're an executive. You're not a C-suite. You're not a leader even. And that's that's hard for some people to actually um, look at. And I also wrote that in that whole chapter about mirrors and microscopes. Like there's a difference than the view that you get if you use those tools. Yeah, it's, it, I, I remember, I mean, I've, a bit like John, we've both managed people throughout our career. And I was always encouraged by our, our HR team to promote people. And I remember having a guy that was more than happy to come in at nine and leave at five and do his job. He, he worked on a help desk. He, he did the most tickets out of anybody. And they were like, you need to make him the team leader. You need to make him the team leader. And I'm like, he doesn't want to be the team leader. He, he, he's very good at doing the tickets and that's what he wants to do. So we, I, we got pushed and pushed and pushed. And I said to him, do you want to be the team leader? And he's like, no, I don't want to be responsible for people. I'm happy to come in, pick up the phone, do my tickets, do the work. I enjoy it. You move me out of that. Suddenly I'm in a completely different job. And in the end, I left that company and they promoted him and he lasted about four months and he just got another job and went off and did the same as he was doing because that's what he wanted to do. And that's what he liked doing. And he's perfectly happy there and he's providing value and he's doing things that are going to be beneficial to the org. And I mean, somewhere somebody had that, you know, idea of like, well, for some reason we need to force this person to do something that is not really what they want to do. Like what? And in any other rational field, would that make any sense to you? But no, here in tech, we do it all the time. And, uh, you know, the, there's the other issue, too, that I wrote about where you've got people that the marketing folks and whoever will gravitate to and say they're super smart and they're, you know, really uh, they really probably are interesting. And they they make them into like dancing tricycle bears and they hate it. And all they do is wreck the brand and wreck the image and they make things and they, they make other people around them miserable. Like if they're not somebody that wants to be on stage and can do the interviews and do the forward, you know, kind of in front of the press stuff, by Jesus, don't force them to do that because it's going to suck for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still uncomfortable talking on stage. I get to do it a lot more than I ever did. And when I did it in a past life, I did it for fun and it was never my job. And I, I definitely get very anxious about it. John, do you still get anxious about it? Not anymore. I mean, I used to. It used to be a nervous wreck before it, but I've done it enough times and I just leverage it now for energy. So not so much. I was going to say, if it's a topic that I've done 10 or 15 times and I've done that particular set of slides or I've told that story, then, I, then I'm, I'm comfortable. I mean, I don't mean that to sound arrogant, but when I've told the story and it's my story and it's my slides, I'm comfortable. So you know what the best the best exercise I ever did for getting good at and I'm not saying I'm good but for getting good at speaking on stage whatever is is called uh slide roulette and basically you get five or six or seven people on your team and everybody makes up two slides that no one knows what they are and they can't mm. have any words they're just pictures 
And then Jay, I would say, Jay, you go present. And I just throw the slides up there and you have to present, even though you've never seen them and don't know what they're about. And if you can do that, you get really good at basically being able to fly off the off the cuff and make sure that you present material that's valid. So it's the like I I think that's an exercise more people should do to get better at um, being comfortable with that kind of uncomfortable space. Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time in, in the current role that I ever presented, it was some slides that John had put together and it was kind of his story. Uh, and I adapted them to, to kind of meet my requirements, but it was still his story. And I really struggled because it wasn't my story. It wasn't like I could search in the back of my mind and, and rely on the fact that I knew the story. So I had to learn somebody else's story. And I learned pretty quickly that I need to create my own story. The slides can be designed or developed, or if I draw them out, someone else can do them. But it has to be a story that I'm familiar with, because in that moment of panic, when those zombies have nearly caught me, because you can run faster and I'm at the back, I need to be able to rely on it's my story. But not only that, it has to be in your voice, too. I mean, I, I read some of your slides where you, you've got the talk track and I'm like, ooh, I can't read it that way. It yeah. just it doesn't come out right. It's not authentic. So um, even if you get the slide, you, you've got to have it come out as, as your voice and yeah. your background. It just makes it easier. And I think it, it's the same with everything in life. And you mentioned this in the book. A lot of times it's about practice and perseverance, right? If you fall off the horse, get back on. Yeah, um, do it. I mean, just you know, and it's not that uh, like I love David Goggins, right? But it's not that that sadomasochism David Goggins approach of like who's going to do it until you die. But do it repeatedly and keep trying to get better, and then you'll get better over time. And don't you know if even if you hit a spot where you realize like this is not going to work, it's not that you stop; it's that you figure out an alternative way to solve the problem, and then you make that the thing you practice, not. Yeah not just continue to slam your head against the wall because there's a wall there like that. I mean, that's made me, made may make you tough. Like I know in the Navy, they used to tell us you could be smart or you could be strong and you pick, you know? So I always chose smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, when does the book come out? Is it officially out? Uh, January 24th is the release date. Okay. So I, I, you gave me a pre-copy and I appreciate that. I did share it with John. No doubt John will read it. I'll get um, you guys a signed copy, so I'll just uh, sign it and send it, uh, you know, over the over the pond. I'm more than happy to buy a copy and have you sign it when I see you next. Nah, you don't um, you don't make any money writing books unless you're one of the lucky few. So I I just do it because <laughs> I, I enjoy it. Do you have any other things in your mind that you want to put to paper? Uh yeah, actually, I, I already pitched um, Wiley on a, a next another book I want to write that's basically about the cybersecurity industry and a. The title of it so far tentatively is called Stuck on Stupid. And that's <laughs> that's really what the crux of it will be about is like we've we've created this self-licking ice cream cone of misery that's funded by marketing dollars and by vendor shenanigans, whatever. And in reality, the problem is very solvable. It's just that we're uh, we keep trying to solve the problem kind of a stupid way when the other things and I, I'm I'm pulling together like use cases of you know, here's where things were done pretty simply, simplistically, and they solved a pretty major problem. Here's where things were, they had hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, and it went sideways because of one moron. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's that simple. We, we have a podcast that we've recorded recently that um, we talk about the root cause, fixing the root cause, and not just constantly 
Like it's great to pack systems and run vulnerability scanning, but if you run vulnerability scanning and just patch the top five problems, why don't you look at what's causing those problems? And that's what we don't seem to be doing. Like those, and and I mean, I, we could have a whole different podcast about. <laughs> That could be a, a six-hour conversation yeah. because, man, the moment I start hearing those things, I just go, uh, yep, and it just gets worse. And that's all to do with <laughs> money is my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's you know, it's one of those things, too, where, um, like, I'm, I have a tentative chapter in there, like, called Cyber Big Pharma. And basically, my proposition yeah. is that it's, I'll make more money if I treat the symptoms and keep the patient alive, no matter how miserable they might be or how, you know, jacked up side effects my medicine might be. Now that there's not benefits to, you know, uh, vaccines and everything else, I've, I've taken every vaccine in the sun. The military stuck me with Windex for all I know. But like the reality of it is, if you're a business person and you're trying to sell stuff, you look at this and go, I would rather keep you alive and pump you full of whatever drugs I can sell you than actually go, let me cure this and I'll get that one time fix. And you go on about your merry way. No, no business person in pharma or cyber wants to do that because it undercuts their own ability to make more money. I, I I mean, I totally agree with that. But also part of me is like, and, and let's look at diseases. Every time we've come along and cured or tr almost cured a disease, like certainly when my, my parents were younger, there was diphtheria, there was polio and all of these, that we've almost eradicated to a point where we don't consider them a big threat anymore. Something else comes along, right? So for me, cyber is very much like that. We could fix some of the issues at the root and no doubt there will be more issues for people to make money out of i i, I but don't not, think not necessarily at the scale that we deal with currently yeah. in my opinion you know and i mean yeah. it's and then the other point to your to yours is there are people who are like i'm not taking tylenol i don't want any drugs whatever good luck brother darwin will work itself out like there is a concept of darwinism in cyber too if you don't want to do anything by all means, that's your choice, but don't like get pissed when bad things happen to you. Yeah, I mean, that's the same as not patching your environment, right? I mean, um, I mean, if you're going to rely on fishing training to keep your organization secure, you're pretty much stuck on stupid. <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit to the fact that I saw some pictures of you online recently wherein what appears to be... You my OnlyFans account. Oh, no. Not, not, that, not that one. I keep that one private. Um, WWF outfit. I mean, I, I, I'm not that familiar with American wrestling, but I'm pretty yeah. sure it was a famous wrestler. Randy outfit. Savage, yeah, Randy the Macho okay, Man. Savage, yeah. Why? <laughs> well, um, so I, was, I was invited to go down for that uh, cyber security marketing con in Austin, and uh, the the event uh, owner was like, "Look, you know, um, if there's anything you can do to kind of." pep things up and make it a little more interesting let me know and i jokingly was like well i could always show up in my halloween costume and she said well what is it and i said screw it i'll show you so i showed her the costume and she's like oh please would you show up in that I said, yeah sure whatever um so i'm pretty sure that that night was the end of my career as a professional but hey it was fun <laughs> there were a lot of photos online of you in that costume um so obviously you have to bring that r to rsa right yeah, someone's going to have to pay for me to go to RSA in that. <laughs> I, I'm sure me and John can crowdfund that. Hey, if the crowd funds it, I will show up and we'll donate the money to charity. So I'm good with that. There no you problem. go. You heard All it right, right we, there. There we go.
<laughs> I will stand. I will stand on the corner of the Moscone Center if it raises money for charity and spandex, and we'll just see what happens. I, yeah, every time I get you on, we we end up spiraling into a conversation that maybe we need to edit out, but we won't because it's fun. Um, okay, so you said you were on vacation recently, and and that means a lot different between someone sat this side of the ocean than that side of the ocean. Because like when I go on vacation, I go for two weeks i'm very poor at disconnecting i have to admit me and john both um have come from a corporate world where disconnecting is almost impossible i still can't do it today i i it, i'm rubbish at it but it appears like the other side of the ocean like you guys go on vacation for like three or four days like firstly where did you go and why did you guys not take longer vacations uh yeah i mean we went to uh so a few years ago when my kids got to be older i stopped giving like birthday and christmas presents because they never could remember what it was and they honestly pretty much didn't care um so i just was like look i'm tired of pissing my money away on stuff that doesn't matter to you guys so i every year i ask them where do you want to go i'll take you on one trip and when we go it's basically i'm not worried about cost and expense and whatever and we just go and so this year it was puerto rico last year we went to belize i think next year they want to go to Panama or something but the whole thing is I just take them with me and you know they they want to go run around the rainforest and chase monkeys then by all means go you know whatever you want to do just do it and it's uh it's turned out to be great because we make way more memories and they they really remember it rather than hey you got me another xbox or you know whatever else so um I, I that's just a lesson I kind of learned for myself was quit pissing money away on material things and make it about experiences and this year in Puerto Rico was great uh you know we got to do fishing and uh the kids got to go jump into uh rivers in the in the rainforest and then they went to the there's a really cool like bio bay in puerto rico where the water looks like it's on avatar it glows it's crazy oh wow hmm. and you caught a massive fish from what i could see online it was uh yeah so i've had a uh i guess you call it a bucket list goal from the, when i was like eight years old i always wanted to catch a tarpon um and tarpon are amazing because they're not you're not going to eat them but they're just like giant uh sport fish and it feels like you've hooked a horse on the end of your line it's awesome and uh, every other one i've had on the line i always lost it right at the boat so this one i finally got in the boat and you can see in the picture that i'm smiling so hard i almost stroked out but it was it was truly uh you know one of my one of my happiest life moments for me is uh was catching that fish and now now it's even worse because that was a i would call it a medium-sized one i want a hundred pound plus one now so you know, that's the next goal. See, I remember going fishing when I was young. My dad took me out. I must have been about 10. And it was at that point that I realized boats make me feel really, really, really sick. Um, and then I took up scuba diving when I was about 18, which is not a good idea when you don't like boats. Um, I'm okay if I'm in the ocean, but I can't be on the... If the boat's... When I say moving, I mean going along... As soon yeah, as it like stops, the, right? If it stops and we're just doing this, no, nah, I'm I'm done. I just well, so like, that's why you, you would like tarpon fishing because tarpon live in uh like brackish water, like rivers where it meets the sea, and they're they're in like ten feet of water and it's flat calm. So. Yeah, I could cope with that. Did you go yeah. fishing, John? Because I know at one point, no, no. My my dad is is a bit of a fisherman. He's he's gone to Alaska and done salmon fishing, fly fishing, those sorts of things. But um, I never, never picked it up. Um, <laughs> I've 
I've tried a few times, but um, once the fish gets in my hands, I'm I'm out. That's I just don't like the sliminess of it. So, uh, <laughs> but you like me. eating it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll eat salmon. I'll eat. I mean, I like last night. I had ahi tuna. So uh, anytime I get oh, the yeah. opportunity to eat it, I'm I'm in. See, I I'm not a huge fan of eating fish, as you know, because you keep trying to get me to eat all the stuff I don't like. Um, well, it's not fish. It's it's the oysters. It's the it's the odd stuff that uh, yeah. you, you seem not to on like. Pizza as well. Just what is going oh, on? That's not fish. That's a that's a fruit. So, Chase, what do you think is going to be next for you over the like over the next six months or so? More conferences, more Australia kind of work. Go into Australia potentially. Maybe if they'll have me over there. Uh, I mean, I, I the the big thing that uh, well, we just launched it recently was this whole demo force thing that we built, and that's you know we're rolling that out to market now. Uh, that's going to be a pretty big push for me over the course of the next whatever. And the reason that I think that it's really valuable is we figured out a way to level the playing field for the vendor space. So you know now we've got it where small startups with five or 10 people can do the same number of uh, product demos as a uh, Palo Alto networks. I mean, you can scale and you can do that stuff fast. So like I, the reason that it, to me that I think that this is going to be game changing is it means that everybody gets a fair shot. Um, if you're a vendor and you're a startup and you're trying to compete in a space with the Microsofts and whatever, you don't have 200 sales engineers. Um, so why not digitize that and automate it and then make it where you can get your stuff out there quicker, better, faster. So it's basically a platform that allows people to do automated demos. Yeah. So we built a custom VM where vendors can put their software on it and they put all their social and all their instructions for how to use it. And then instead of you having to schedule a human being to do a demo, you just send someone a link and they can drop into the VM and play with your software and follow your instructions. And when it's over, they you get the lead i mean it's that simple i mean that's coming from a technical background you want to play with the stuff right you want to get hands on you want you want to see what it can do and it, you you might not be able to use all the functions in that environment but at least you can see what it feels and looks like right yeah it's not a proof of concept it's basically like you know if you're if you're going to have somebody and you uh, you know all those times you've been at black hat or defcon and you go up to the booth and you say well what's your product do and they go oh well let me get rick and they go grab find rick and he's the one guy that knows how the hell all this stuff works there's only one rick but they need to be able to say oh you want to demo software here's a qr code go demo it yourself and that way you get that scale and you can do that at more speed and and I, like you said, at, at RSA and Black Hat and those, like I plan on working with the smaller vendors that are trying to get that scale because I don't think we can solve this problem of cyber until the playing field is level. And it's not a knock on the big vendors. They have good products and they do good things. But there's probably some innovators out there that don't have 200 sales engineers that could be very beneficial and they're just not getting a fair swing at the plate. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. I know we've talked about it before, but I... I think it's a really smart idea. I think it does level the playing field a bit and it gives people the opportunity to do what they want to do, right? So no doubt you'll be wandering around um, in a WWE, WWF? What is it? I think now it's WWE, yeah, because WWF is World Wildlife Fund. They had a big like kerfuffle about that a while ago. and uh, It was and called WWF though, right? It, it was, was, yeah. It was, it was World Wrestling Federation and then <laughs> the World Wildlife Federation sued them and now they're the World Wrestling Entertainment. Okay, because I remember as a kid having it on TV, but we don't get it on TV anymore. 
Well, uh, if you're like for me from the South, like you grew up on wrestling. So like I grew up on football and wrestling and, uh, you know, I used to watch the Von Erichs and Hulk Hogan and all that stuff. So I remember Hulk Hogan, but again, yeah. he was, he was, he was like the Michael Jordan of wrestling, right? Everybody knew him. Even if you never watched wrestling, you knew who he was. Um, John, anything from you before we wrap? Do you want to no, ask a fun um, question? Yeah, the fun question. Um, what was the best thing you ate in uh, Puerto Rico? Oh, uh, so uh, one thing that uh, you got to get if you go to Puerto Rico is you got to get this stuff called mafungo, which is awesome. It's like plantains and corn and whatever that they kind of mash up and they can mix it with all kinds of stuff. I like the skirt steak in mafungo. Oh, that um, sounds good. Yeah, it, it's uh, life changing. And we still need to get together in Dallas at some point. So we do. Yeah, some barbecue or something of that sort. Or yeah. And if we get together in Dallas, Dallas thing is. Yeah, that's uh that's near my hometown. So if we get together in Dallas with enough time, you know, I can uh I can get a bunch of tannerite and we can go blow things up. As long as you're <laughs> not dressed that. in a costume, we'll be fine with that. <laughs> I'll be okay with that. If he's dressed up in a costume, we can get to go blow things up. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, okay. so I will start a crowdfund page to get you to RSA. And any money we collect, we will give to charity. A thousand percent. If we, if if folks want to see me make a fool out of myself and it helps a charity, I am glad to do it. And if the RSA is the end of my career, then so be it. But uh, <laughs> I am I am up for that. It may be the start of a new career. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But God, thank I you very not. much for coming on the show again. It's always great to talk to you. I'm hoping to meet you again in person soon, uh, no matter what you're dressed in. So thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good one, and uh, appreciate y'all having me on again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.